morning. Good to see you all. Last Sunday I was not here because I was in Kansas City, not because I was there for the Super Bowl to watch with Kansas City people. I'm a Denver Broncos fan, and I watched the game with all my cousins and aunts and uncles, and they're all Broncos fans, and so we had to tolerate all the red and the gold last weekend. I only share that not because it's any importance to you, but, but apparently there's a quota. I have to say the word Kansas every Sunday, according to Nick last night. So it's the only reason why I shared that in this moment. Having said that, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to uh, John chapter 21 and 1 Peter chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, the ushers are, will be glad to provide you one. And this can be a gift from us to you or you can just simply borrow it for this service. And we'll be on page 1017 and 1139 in that Bible. Now, some of you are probably recognizing, hey, there's actually service, uh, space in this service. There's about 150 people right now on a retreat in New York State, uh, mostly teenagers with a slew of adults that are uh, leaders, but also helping cook the food. And a lot of those people are normally in this service. So, uh, imagine 150 more people right now actually in a, in a service uh, as we speak. And so you can be praying for them that the gospel will penetrate their hearts and, be, uh, and God do a, a mighty work there. Having said that, I want to just kind of point out that while last week Nick uh, got us start, started with a series on the books of First and Second Peter, but he spent his time in the Gospels giving context to Peter's life, because there was a commissioning that happened when Jesus asked Peter, you know, who do you say that I am? Peter needed to respond with, with something that obviously would satisfy the Lord Jesus, and, and he did. He spoke and said, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God, and as a result, he got, Jesus says, you are blessed because you have known this to be true, and so it's an understanding of Peter as he writes these things in First and Second Peter uh, that, to, that we need to go back to the Gospels sometimes to understand the context of why Peter's saying what Peter says. So you're going to see this regularly as we go through the epistles of Peter, First and Second Peter, that we will regularly refer back to the Gospels of a moment that's usually between Peter and Jesus. And we're going to be doing much the same this morning as we look into the first chapter of 1 Peter. But to understand that and appreciate it, we have to go to this moment in John. Now, just to give a little bit of context to the whole, we'll be in this series till the end of June. And so we'll be taking smaller portions of 1 Peter. And today we'll be in four verses, which will be uh, primarily verses 3 to 6 of the first chapter. Having said that, I want to point something out uh, and give you an image and see if you can figure out what is the common commonality between the six images you see on that wheel. See if you can figure it out in your mind. You don't have to shout anything out. I'll give you the answer. Uh, otherwise, we'd be here a while. So if you look at that, you see fire, you see water, you see a, a tornado image, you see clearly a person that's sick in bed, you see a figure of a person, and then you see somebody with a walker. Can you figure out the commonality between those six images? What if I was to tell you that God gave me permission this morning to put a wheel up here, we're going to spin it, and wherever it lands, when you're up here with me, that will be the way and the manner by which you 
die. Are you encouraged? No, no. I, I want you to know that when coming up with this wheel, we tried to choose as colorful as we could because I didn't want a morbid, dark moment because as soon as you start talking about death, it is a painful subject. And when you start talking about the matter of death, it's an awkward subject. Who, do, who really wants to talk about the matter of death by which you and I would die? We don't know our final breath. You might even have a terminal illness, but you do not know your final minute on which day that will happen. But God does. And I believe it in many ways it's a gift to not know the day or the hour that we would die. Well, let's say that we knew that our death date was 22 years from now. For the next 20 years, you might not live in the most careful manner because you know you got time. But perhaps around the final couple years, you would start living your life with some sense of diligence and purpose and so on. But others of you might go, I'll, I'm going to wait till my final six weeks. And perhaps maybe the final 24 hours. Well, the reality is, is what we're going to read in this text is that an unusual moment happens between Jesus and Peter when Peter is informed the manner of which he's going to die and basically a timeline. And so it affects very much how you read 1 Peter. So that's why we're going to be here today. So let's begin in John chapter 21 and we're going to read in beginning in verse 15. It says, when they had finished eating, again all the apostles are there at, at this moment, Peter is just, they've just been out fishing and they caught a bunch of fish and then Jesus is walking along the shoreline and calls out to him and says, bring in the fish, let's eat. And this is post-resurrection moment. And so they were excited to see that it was Jesus. Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. So that's the context. And when you see this, it says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now that question doesn't seem too unfair, but what is he referring to? Is he referring to the fact that there's fish right there that they had just eaten? That was his career, you know, historically. They're also near Capernaum at this point. That's his hometown. You know, is he referring to, you know, all the people he grew up around? Uh, or is it perhaps his companions, the fellow apostles? And, and I think many commentarians really believe he's referring to these apostles. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Then the third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? Peter responds, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Let me just pause there for a moment. If you know Peter's story, you know that on the night that Jesus 
was betrayed and was going to be taken in for, for a court hearing to see, you know, what he was guilty of. And in this case, an illegal court. And, and, uh, and they found him guilty of blasphemy. But in that process, prior, Jesus, while they were at the table, preparing for washing the disciples' feet and, and the communion, Jesus forecasts what's about to happen hours later. And Peter says... I will fight to the death for you. Jesus' response to Peter in that moment was, well, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. It's pretty much commonly held that the reason why Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me, is, be, is a restoration or a restorative moment between Peter and Jesus but in front of the other apostles in the same manner that Jesus forecasted before the apostles that Peter was going to deny him three times so in the same way Jesus says you're going to fail three times before this group of people now Jesus asked him before that same group of people three times Peter do you love me now, many of you are here fully expecting me to go into the Greek and explain the difference between the forms of love used in this text because that's been preached and spoken and taught many times over. Let me just say this. That may or may not be accurate as you've been taught. In fact, most commentarians teach, and I'm going to explain here for a moment. Most commentarians teach that when Jesus asks, do you agape me, which agape would be the Greek most intimate form of love. He asks that the first couple times, and then he ends with saying, do you phileo me, which is a lower form, more like I love you as a brother, as a friend, but not like that deep, intimate love, or it's more like I like you. And, and so some people have said that Jesus lowered the bar because Peter wanted to, to, to somehow help Peter be able to move forward. And the reality is, when you study the book of John, John regularly interchanges those terms. He even, a couple of different times, refers to the love between Jesus and the Father as phileo love and agape love. So for John, they're interchangeable terms. So it perhaps it is an increasingly or decreasingly a standard of love that he asked Peter but more than likely, it's simply interchangeable terms. But what I do want to highlight in the Greek that is important, that I do believe is a distinctive, is that there are two different Greek words that Peter uses to respond to the question. So the first question again, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. That Greek term for no is oida which basically is to know factually. Well, of course, I love you, all right? Then he asks the second time, Peter, do you love me? And, and Peter says um, to him, he says, um, Lord, you know that I love you. Same statement, oida again. Of course, you know factually I love you. But the third time Jesus asked, it says that Peter was hurt. Because he had asked a third time, do you love me? And then Peter's response is, Lord, you know, oida, all things. But you know, gnosko, that I love you. 
which gnosko, word of knowledge, means this. You know because you've seen it. Jesus, it's not that you just know. Of course you know. Of course you know. He says it twice. But here he says, Jesus, you know because you've seen. You've seen me show love towards you. So there's a, a very intimate moment here between Jesus and Peter, where Peter says, you know, you know, but in this case, you know because you've watched. You've seen it happen. But there's also another thing to highlight in this text, and that is the actual response or charge that Jesus is giving to Peter in this moment. Now, the first time when he asked Peter, and Peter says, you know that I love you, Jesus says, feed my sheep. Now, that term, feed, actually also means pasture my sheep. In other words, take my sheep where they can eat. But in this case, he says with the first statement, feed my lambs, or pasture my lambs. And so he's saying to the most vulnerable, the most young, the most immature of the flock, in this case, the church, pasture them. Take them where they can be fed well. Then you see in the next statement, Jesus says to him, take care of my sheep. So feed my lambs, pasture my lambs, and take care of my sheep. So he's referring to the whole flock. So the, the aspect of the entire flock from immature to mature, he is to shepherd them, care for them, meet their needs as to whatever they are, spiritual and physical. That's the charge given to Peter. But it doesn't end there. He emphasizes a third time. Peter, do you love me? And Peter's saying, of course, you know, you've seen that I love you. And Jesus says, pasture my sheep. So pasture, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. It's a very clear emphasis as to the role Peter is to play in the future of the church. Very important. So then when you see what happens next, you're going to see an important thing that draws back to that aspect of that image I just showed you on the wheel. Jesus says, feed my sheep, verse 18, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. <laughs> and Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. And this is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? Peter saw him and he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? But you must follow me. So in this text, you have the feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, and then lastly, feed my sheep. And so it is abundantly clear to Peter that he is going to be the lead shepherd of the church. That he is going to need to care for the, the vulnerable 
and the mature. And he is going to lead them to places where they can grow and eat. But in this journey, there is going to be other challenges. Because as he goes through, there are going to be sufferings. There are going to be hardships. The sheep aren't always going to want to follow you. In fact, the sheep even may criticize you. They're, after all, sheep. They are the dumbest animal we know. That's the interesting thing. When God chose an animal to give an analogy of you and I, he chose us to be like sheep, which intellectually are one of the dumbest animals. It's, it's a fact. Now, if you want to choose the most intellectual animal, believe it or not, the pig is one of the smartest animals out there. When you hear that, it's like, be my pigs. <laughs> Feed my pigs. Then I start thinking, okay, I'm okay with being dumb sheep, all right? So you get into this text, and you've got that clearly he knows, I am responsible for the flock, the church of God. And then Jesus is telling him, you must follow me. And in the Greek, basically this is a present imperative, which basically means this, keep on following me. So in spite of whatever happens around you, keep on following me. And this makes a ton of sense when you realize that Peter had been following Jesus for over three years now. In fact, you can find in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, the very moment that Peter began to follow Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. Peter drops his nets, leaves his occupation and family behind, and follows Jesus. So Peter had already been following Jesus. And so, so now in the text, he's saying, keep on following me. You've got a role for the church, and I need you to keep on following. It doesn't end, which, by the way, Jesus is about to go and ascend to heaven. He's saying, keep on following me even when I'm not here. Keep going and keep going beyond because you will need to help the church to keep going and keep following me. You must do the same. But in the midst of this, he says to Peter, and by the way, you will go to the death for me. Remind you that when Peter said, after Jesus said, I'm going to be handed over, somebody's going to betray me, I'm going to be killed and crucified before people, Peter's like, no, I won't let it happen. I will go to the death for you. And Jesus says, no, you're going to deny me three times. Well, now, after restoring him, he says, after all, Peter, you will die for me. And then he gives the description. He says, you're going to die. I mean, look what it says. We'll just read it again. It says, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And John, who's writing this book, says, basically, this is the God saying, or Jesus saying, this is how you're going to die. They all understood this was the matter of death for Peter. Imagine, now you're being told, you will end up dying for me. But there's some things you need to hear in this. First of all, you'll be old. You'll be older. Doesn't give the age, but you'll be older. He's told that it will be forced because somebody will lead you and clothe you that you do not want to clothe you and lead you. And then you will stretch out your arms, which was likely understood that 
you too will be crucified. Now, again, how many of us know the matter of death by which we are, our end will be? We don't, but Peter did. Now, he knows it's going to be older, so he knows there's a season of time by which he'll be able to lead the church. You see it in the book of Acts, how Peter becomes a leader in ministry to the Gentiles, which you would have never guessed from Peter, because he was very much an anti-Gentile kind of guy. But he ends up becoming a leader among the Gentiles, and yes, a leader within the church. But there was going to be a point. Peter, you're going to die. And it's going to be by crucifixion. And you're going to be forced to do so. Tough pill to swallow. And Jesus concludes that by saying, follow me. Keep on following me. Don't let this distract you. Don't let this hinder you. Keep on following me. So then what happens next is very, again, consistent with the apostles. Peter turns and sees that John's just behind. Now, I love how John writes. If you think that there isn't a little bit of, what should I say, reality in the way the apostles wrote these books, I mean, look at what John says. Uh, and Peter saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was behind them. And this is the same apostle who leaned back towards Jesus and asked at the supper table, who's going to betray you? Now, isn't that nice to write about yourself and say, you're the one that Jesus really loved? And so, if you recall, let me bring back to that table moment when he leans over and asks, who's going to be one of the ones, who's going to be the one to betray? After that moment, you have the communion, you have the washing of the feet, and then a discussion happens between the disciples. Who's going to be the greatest? And this was not the first time those disciples had had that discussion. In fact, Multiple times they had had the discussion, who among us is going to be the greatest? And even one of the couple of them got so bold to have their mom ask, can my son sit on your right and my other son sit on your left? I mean, this whole thing about standing among themselves, who is the higher rank and who is going to be seen as the greatest in heaven, was an ongoing discussion in spite of Jesus' confrontation of that. And so in this moment, the temptation comes back. Well, I just got told I'm going to die for the cause. How about John? Look what Jesus says in verse 22. If I want John to remain alive until I return, what is that to you, Peter? You must follow me. So it's not a case of keep on following me. He had said that at the beginning of this. Keep on following me, Peter, as you've done when you left your nets behind. But now, when you're starting to get distracted by what's on your right and what's on your left, follow me. You must follow me. Don't get distracted by the prideful things or the fairness of whether or not he's going to die in the same manner that you're going to die. So it's under this context we need to understand that when Peter writes to the church in Turkey, we know it as modern-day Turkey, but you're going to see a list of names, and all those names are in today's modern-day country of Turkey, that when Peter writes to that group of people from Rome, he is doing so 30 years or more later from when Jesus says, when you are old. We know that Peter 
was likely in his mid to early 30s, mid, I'm sorry, mid uh, 20s to early 30s, based on the fact he had already had a family and was, uh, and was well uh, into his career. So we know he's not like the youngest of the apostles. So when you add 30 years to 30, it puts you in your 60s. And in that time, that is putting you towards the end of your life. So Peter knows, as he's writing the book of 1 Peter, that he is towards his end, and the end is coming, and that he is going to pay the price. And the signs of that coming were very evident to him, because now he's in Rome, writing this letter, back to a place he had already traversed, and he's speaking to them in a place where they clearly are already experiencing suffering at various levels. And Peter writes, knowing his end is coming and knowing that they're in the midst of suffering, some important words that we can receive today that can help us as we look forward. So let's now dive into 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles, Scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the knowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. It's one of the strongest statements of the triunity of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being spoken in this moment. But look at what his first statement is. When speaking to them, he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace and peace, you're suffering. There's hardship. You don't know if Rome's coming after you or your fellow Jews are coming after you. You don't know. You're operating under the fear of persecution. And he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now that's just dripping with theology. And we're going to get there here in a moment. So again, I'm going to read it so you can hear it. Praise be to the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept for you in heaven. though, And who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation. That is ready to be revealed in the last time. And in all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Let me stop there. So he says, grace and peace in abundance to you. But praise God for his mercy. Praise God for his mercy that affords us a living hope. The difference between mercy and grace needs to be explained here to make sure that when we're hearing this, we understand what it is saying. We praise God for his mercy. Mercy being not receiving 
what we have deserved or earned. Mercy is not receiving that which we deserve or have earned. Grace is receiving something that we have not earned. Okay, so grace is receiving something that we have not earned or worked for. But mercy is not receiving that which we have earned and worked for. So having said that, when it says praise God for his mercy that affords us a living hope, what he is saying is we should be thanking God that mercy ruled lest you and I would have to pay the full cost of that which we have earned. You see, in the gospel, the good news, it is not understood to be good news unless you know that if you don't have the work of Christ in your life, then the eternal location and damnation that comes with the sins that have earned that is an eternal destruction in a place called hell. If you do not understand that that is what you and I have earned, then what I speak to in regards to the gospel means nothing to you. You see, each of us are sinners. We have fallen short of that which God has set as the standard of holiness. And because each of us were born with sin, where we continue to do things that are selfish at the cost of our relationship with God and at the cost of relationship with others, we are selfish beings. We have earned a death that separates us for eternity from God. But God is merciful. Because he loves us, he also wanted to make sure there was a means by which you and I can have a hope that is not about destruction. So mercy goes first. Mercy is the decision that God made. I am not going to, to allow death to reign over you, but by that I afford another opportunity of hope where grace can abound. So his mercy to not destroy us is the leading is leading the way. His mercy is what leads to our salvation. And that's where it says in this text, we praise God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that in his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. So this new birth goes back to a statement that, that is said in John chapter uh, 3, where Nicodemus and Jesus were having this discussion. And Jesus said, you must be born again. You have to become a new creature in order for you to experience the blessings of God and its full and to have a true hope in resurrection. And so Peter's saying the same thing here, that we can praise God for his mercy because that gives us a living hope because we have new birth. And this new birth, as he says in the text, is accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not accomplished through anything that is good acts on your part, my part. It's not done uh, by any other kind of sacrifice. It was done by one sacrifice, and that was Jesus. It paid the price for our sins. And then his resurrection gives us that living hope that when we die, there is life beyond. That gives us hope for that. And that comes in a new birth that happens at the point of faith in that work.
So this hope anticipates then what is beyond, our inheritance. It says in verse 4, and into an inheritance. So our hope is a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. In other words, an inheritance that can't deteriorate, it can't be stolen, and it cannot be destroyed. Can you come up with anything on the face of this earth that you can say that about? There's nothing else on the face of this earth that you can say will never perish, will never spoil, and will never fade. There's nothing. Even the things we hold dear and, and, and very close to our heart, we know that it's a matter of time. The best built buildings in the world will not last for eternity. So you look at the text and you see that our hope anticipates this inheritance that can't be taken from you. And that inheritance is found in heaven itself. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, as it says at the end of verse 4. Who through faith we are then shielded by God's power until the coming of that salvation. That is ready to be revealed in that last time. So... What's interesting about this is that we have this hope about this coming inheritance that can't be stolen, can't be destroyed, will not fade. And we can long for that with a living hope every day, knowing that that is beyond. And we do so by faith as ones who are guarded by the power of God. Now, I need to explain here for a moment that in the Greek, if you were to rewrite this phrase more literally, it was saying that we are the ones being guarded. So it's a title actually given to us. Those who have this new hope, this living hope, those who are anticipating this inheritance that is yet to come that won't be destroyed, God says, these are my guarded ones. These are my guarded ones. So those who have new birth are my children, the ones who I protect, I guard, and I am sp sparing them for the end when they will have this eternal hope that I'm preparing just for them. And then Peter says this in light of that. We have this mercy so we don't have to fear being destroyed. And that gives us a new birth because by faith we get new birth in Christ. And then it gives us a living hope about that which is to come. And it comes later that can't be taken. And then by faith we live that out every day as guarded ones. Ones guarded by God. So then Peter says, so in all of this, in light of this, verse 6, in light of this, greatly rejoice. Greatly rejoice that though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Keep in mind, some in the church were being arrested just because of their faith. Some in the church had literally already been killed just because they claimed Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They were seen as a threat to Rome and as a threat to the religious leaders of the Jewish faith at that time. Because they denied him as the Messiah. 
the chosen one, the coming one. And, G and what we see here is Peter says, greatly rejoice. Greatly rejoice that in spite of these sufferings and trials we are facing, yes, some of you are dying because of the faith. Others of you are just being, uh, are being kicked out of your families because of your faith. Rejoice because all of this is temporary. Rejoice because all of this is temporary. This will come to an end. And there's all kinds of trials we're going to face. But if you realize that there is a hope that is beyond, it'll get you through. You see, what I've noticed in my own life, my nature, and I don't think I'm unique, is that it's easier to get through something difficult when you know it's going to come to an end. It's much more difficult when you go through something and you don't know how it's going to end or if it will. Choose your storyline as to what that could be. And that is always true. It is easier if you know there is an end. Some of you would be complaining by now about the condition of our church, but you know there's an end. You know that we're going to eventually be able to walk in doors that have space for us. You know that there's going to be eventually a place where it's not as dusty and dirty. And, you, and, and so we know there's going to be an end to that. We know that when there's a difficult season at work, for some of you, you work in the tax field. You know what I'm talking about. April 15th comes. And then your work gets a lot easier. But until then, you know you're going to be putting in 60 plus hours a week. So it's easy to get through it when you know there's an end. But so much about life does not give it to us that way. We don't know if cancer is going to take your life. We don't know if cancer is going to take your parent's life or your child's life or your spouse's life. We don't know that in the end that this hardship at work will get any better. And they tell you there's a new employer coming in or a new supervisor. You don't know if it's going to get better. It might get worse. Notice what I'm picking at. I'm not choosing anything where you guys are having to suffer because of your faith in Christ. Because that's not something that honestly we realize here in our country. We can get ostracized. We can get made fun of. We might get slight rejection. But to refer to that as suffering is difficult to do. But life does bring hardship. And life does bring suffering. And what Peter just gives us here. From a man who's already been told... You're going to die when you're older, and you're going to die at the hands of, a, of other men. They're going to dress you, and they're going to stretch out your arms, just like mine were stretched out, and you're going to die for the cause. And now Peter knows, I'm old now. This could happen. Does Peter come off as a man who is hopeless in this? Not at all. And he's speaking to people who are suffering right now. And does it come off as a hopeless message? No, he says, praise be to God. In verse 3, praise be to God because we have a new birth. And we have a living hope because we know where we're going. And until then, we're known as the guarded ones. The ones who God has protected and shielding us so that we can keep our eyes looking forward. So the takeaways are this. Regardless of what's happening in your life, hard, difficult, suffering, or ease, praise God we have victory that is found in Jesus. Praise God that we have victory found in Jesus.
Because with that, our hope can then look beyond the current struggles to an incredible future. Regardless of whatever comes my way, I can always know that that, even if my body begins to suffer, even if my body begins to deteriorate, or if things that I had known are starting to be taken from me, I know that it's temporary. And I look beyond to a greater end. Because praise be to God, I have victory in Jesus. And my hope is not rooted in the present. It's rooted beyond. And then as I'm going through the struggles, as what Peter was told by Jesus, after he was told, you're going to die for my cause. And Peter has that slight moment of, what about him? Jesus chastises him and says, it doesn't matter what's on your right, what's on your left, or what's behind. Keep looking at me. Keep following me as the source of your joy. And I will tell you, nothing like hardship or difficulty will tempt you to take your eyes off of that which God has called us heavenward for. Keep looking to Jesus as the source of joy in the hardest of times. Let's pray. Jesus, I recognize that if I was the one that was standing before you and you were looking into my eyes, that I would have probably come up with a lot of things besides just pointing at John. But as I look at what Peter says, that moment where his heart was hurt, he says, you've seen, you know. Jesus, I believe in that moment you are acknowledging that you do know but you're also giving us strength because you know what lies ahead. And we don't know our future on this earth, but we do know our future beyond this earth. And in that, we can find hope and faith. So Jesus, bring new birth to our lives. For those of us that need you, bring new birth today. For kids that are at that retreat right now that are hearing the gospel, bring new birth there so that they can discover the living hope that can then cause us to look down the line and make it through what is between here and then. Thank you, Jesus, for the hope we have in you. In your name I pray, amen. So we're charged by Peter, who knew his time was coming to an end, speaking to a group who was going through a very difficult time, as a church, he says, praise be to God for the new birth that leads us to a living hope. And all this is because of mercy. And so we are to rejoice in the fact we have hope. And that's what this book honestly is about. First and second Peter is about giving hope in the midst of great challenge. And so today it's about looking beyond, knowing that there is something we know can't be touched by what this world tries to destroy. And if you yourself have never experienced what new birth is all about, we would invite you to come and talk to us. There will be people underneath the cross who would be glad to share the gospel with you. I will be up front as well. would love to tell you about what Jesus can do in your life. But for those of us who have known and had that faith for a long time, if you're going through a hard time, remember, we have 
victory in Christ. We just have to keep our eyes on him and remember what's down the road. A statement that was said in a group of about 12 people who helped me prepare and others prepare for this series. We're just looking over the book of, books of First and Second Peter, and this statement was said by one of the people at that table a few weeks ago, and it was this. Christ leads us through trials and suffering, not away from it. So this is an instruction book on how to get through it, not how to avoid it. Because trials come uninvited. Today, tomorrow, yesterday, they come uninvited. This is about knowing how to get through. And praise be to God, we have victory in Jesus because we have a living hope due to new birth. Amen. You are dismissed. God bless.